And let me pray as we begin. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us through your Holy Spirit so to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was a kid and we were at my grandparents' home, there was usually a Western playing on the television. And there's a trope in those old movies of the drunken gunslinger who needs a sidekick or maybe a victim of the man in the black hat to come and to throw a bucket of water on him to snap him out of his stupor. That's the image that comes to my mind when I hear someone say, sober up. Being sober in Scripture, however, means more than simply being free of intoxication. It means being clear-headed and not confused, serious and not frivolous, purposeful and not aimless. In our passage tonight, Peter gives a call to his readers that they be sober-minded. And he does so not only with the cold water-like shock of serious warnings, but also with the sweetness of the gospel to motivate and the guidance of exhortation to instruct them. Those who have been called for a glorious salvation and an important purpose are now called to sober up for life as God's holy people. Just like you can't show up drunk for a shootout at the OK Corral, the Christian life requires a sober and self-controlled mind. Our text falls pretty naturally into two divisions, and that'll form the outline that I provided. It's in the back of the bulletin. In verses 1 through 6, we'll see sober living in the world. And in verses 7 through 11, sober living in the church. Kids, the words for you to listen for are in the normal place, and they are sober, church, Christians, world, mind, sin, and Christ. So look with me at verse 1 as we begin with sober living in the world. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Here at the beginning of chapter 4, Peter is speaking of the reformation of Christians. Those who have been called out of darkness into light, will begin to live differently as they see things as they really are. And the place to begin with this is considering Christ's mind. Verse 1 begins, since therefore, which tells us this is not a new line of thinking. Peter's building on what he had previously said. He's connecting back to chapter 3, verse 18, which we heard last week. Christ suffered once for sins in his flesh, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, Peter tells us, since he did so, if we are going to live soberly in the world, we must prepare by getting into the same frame of mind. He says, arm yourself. He says, go get the necessary equipment for a battle. Because Peter's not naive. Sober living 
will be a fight against the world, against our sinful flesh, and against the devil. And only those who have properly been armed will survive intact. But the armor and the weapons are not physical or cultural or social. Instead, the the battle begins in every Christian's mind and heart. And when Peter says we must have the same way of thinking as Christ, he's not saying follow the same logical syllogisms to ensure that you arrive at the proper conclusion. The idea is more encompassing than that. He says we need the same mindset. We need the same perspective. We need the same worldview. And this includes our affections as well as our intentions to go along with our thoughts. Since, since Christ suffered in the flesh, he says, we who are in the flesh must look at the world the same way he did. So you might ask, how is a Christian going to get this mind of Christ? Is it up to us to go out and to figure out what we need to prepare for this battle? No. Christ himself has provided for us all that we need to follow in his footsteps. As John Calvin writes, Peter is intimating that we are really and effectually supplied with invincible weapons to subdue the flesh if we partake as we ought of the efficacy of Christ's death. When you partake of the means of grace, of scripture read and preached, of the sacraments, And as we'll see later, in praying and participating in the fellowship of the church, when you are involved in that, you are renewed. You are transformed. You put on the armor of God, and your heart and your mind become like Christ's. And as this happens, a major change takes place. When a person has Christ's mind... There's a shift in his controlling motives. We're no longer driven by human passions, but we are compelled by the will of God. Peter is unpacking here what he has mentioned earlier in the letter, back in chapter 1, verse 14, and again in chapter 2, verse 11. We, by nature, have sinful desires, and these sinful desires control us, and they lead us into all kinds of sinful actions. But those who have Christ's mind are no longer under the sway of those desires. They're set free. And instead, their controlling motive is God's will. And the reality is, we will always be driven by one or the other. And when we are armed with the mind of Christ, it's then that we learn to pray with Him, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And then, in the words of Matthew Henry, we make the will of God, not our own lusts or desires, the rule of our lives and actions. So the reformation of Christians begins with having Christ's mind, and that changes our controlling motives, and it results, Peter says, in ceasing from misdeeds. And when he writes, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin... He's speaking of the Christian 
who is following Christ's example. But this is not a statement about suffering in general. We could probably all think of times in our own lives when we have suffered because of our own sin. Peter's statement here is in light of chapter 3, verse 17. He specifically has in mind Christians who suffer for doing good. You see, the option in front of these Christians in Asia Minor was either to sin or to suffer. Because Christ had freed them from the penalty and power of sin, they had begun to put it to death in their own lives. And Peter's encouragement is that in the irony of God's providence, the fact that they are suffering demonstrates that they already have the mind of Christ. They have made a break with sin, otherwise they wouldn't be suffering at the hands of their unbelieving neighbors. It takes a clear and sober mind to determine to obey God rather than men, no matter the cost. And Peter calls us to look to Christ and do just that. But the reformation of these Christians didn't go unnoticed. Next, Peter speaks of the reaction of the world, beginning at verse 3. For the time is past, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. First, Peter lists some of the world's sins. He continues his theme of speaking to the Christians as the Israel of God. So here he uses the term Gentiles to describe all of those outside the church. And he says that the sinful desires that they have lead unbelievers to indulge in all kinds of fleshly pleasure. And all of it ultimately culminates in idolatry. These are the human passions that are opposed to the will of God. And I want to make two applications at this point. First, we're Presbyterians. We have a healthy appreciation for the gifts of God and our Christian liberty. But in this list, three of the words, the ones translated drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties in the ESV, or excess of wine, revelings, and banquetings in the good old King James, those three words all directly relate to the abuse of alcohol. Wine is a good gift of God to gladden the heart of man. But like all of God's gifts, it is a cruel master. Scripture is filled with warnings about drunkenness. And we must be clear-minded about the destruction that's done to our bodies and our relationships when we misuse alcohol. Drunkenness destroys homes. It brings dishonor to the Lord. So the Christian's use of alcohol must be starkly different than that of those who are driven by their senses and passions. So whatever you do, whether you eat or don't eat, drink or don't drink, do it for the glory of God 
And do not use your freedom as an opportunity to gratify your sinful flesh. And this is a sin that you're fighting to mortify. I urge you, bring it under the power of the Holy Spirit in self-control. And please know, your, your elders stand ready to walk with you through that battle however we can. And second, and particularly for you covenant children of the church, notice that Peter, has, Peter says the time has already come and gone for indulging in these sins. Kids, I grew up in the church, and sometimes those who grow up in the church like I did think that we're somehow missing out if we don't have the opportunity to join in with the world in these sinful pleasures. And I am here to tell you that you are not missing anything. And if you don't believe me, there are older saints in this room who have lived many years apart from the Lord, and they would join with me in pleading with you, don't be taken in by what the world offers. It only ends in misery, heartache, and ultimately, physical and spiritual death. And for you teenagers, those of you that are getting close to adulthood and you'll soon be moving away from your parents' protection, please and please hear me. You don't need a Presbyterian rumspringa. You don't need to go sow your wild oats and then later settle down to pursue godliness. You, just like all of us, have had the sufficient time to rack up sinful guilt. Now it's time to live to righteousness. The road that begins with sensuality ends in lawless idolatry. So don't start down the path by joining with the world in their sinful passions. Instead, live your life following the will of God so that you may be sanctified. So after listing the world's sins, Peter then moves to the world's surprise. Because these things that he lists, these aren't just the weekend hobbies that are going on each weekend in the local towns. These are the sins that are part and parcel of civic and cultural life. Their debauchery, like that of Noah's contemporaries, was a flood, Peter says. It seeped into every corner of the society. So when these Christians refuse to run along with the culture and their rejection of those drinking parties that were often tied to trade guilds and to pagan worship and their refusal to honor the emperor as a god in lawless idolatry, as they turn their backs on the idolatry that had been passed down for countless generations, these Christians were condemning the sins of the very culture in which they lived. In the words of one commentator, it was not so much what the Christians did or said which caused offense, but what they refused to do. That is, to join in the social and religious activities which were the very fabric of society. You see, these churches throughout Asia Minor were many countercultures in their own way. And so they were a threat to the sins of these societies in which they lived. In a play on the original Greek, what Peter says here, we could even say that these so-called Gentiles were xenophobic 
toward the Christians. The surprise that they felt that some of their former comrades in sin had abandoned the old ways led to suspicion, to outright animosity. As so often happens, the world's surprise at the church's condemnation of the world's sin, whether explicit or silent through their actions, then led to the world's slander. In their shock, in their anger, Peter literally says that these non-Christians blaspheme. In this time in history, Christians began to be labeled as disturbers of the peace or as atheists or as menaces to society. Peter's not yet writing to Christians under threat of widespread governmental persecution. But the unbelievers were not above false accusations to the authorities in an effort to get the Christians to conform to the culture. Because, as Wayne Grudem writes, silent non-participation in sin often implies condemnation of that sin, and rather than change their ways, unbelievers will slander those who have pained their consciences or justify their own immorality by spreading rumors that the quote-unquote righteous Christians are immoral as well. Brothers and sisters, it should be no surprise when the very same thing happens to God's people today. The labels may have changed. Now we might be hateful or bigots or hypocrites. But the spirit of our age is no different. And we are foolishly naive if we think that simply being nice and quiet while holding to the truth of God's word is going to exempt us from the slander of the world. In the words of Karen Jobes, in our pluralistic age of globalization, issues of multicultural pluralism are creating an ethos similar to that of the polytheism Peter faced. Everything spiritual seems acceptable in modern society except the exclusive claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the one thing that can't be permitted. But Peter refuses to let his readers despair or to fight fire with fire. They don't need to. Because the world's slander will ultimately end in the world's sentencing. There is a judge that stands ready to execute true justice. So while their accusations may require the Christians to give an account in the courts of the world, everyone, and especially their accusers, must one day give an account in the court of heaven. We confess this reality every week in the creed. The Lord Jesus Christ, for whose name Christians are maligned, and the one who is blasphemed when his people are slandered, he is the righteous judge of all the living and the dead. Every man, woman, boy, and girl will one day give an answer to him. So while we must be sober-minded about what living in the world may entail for us, we do not lose hope. John Calvin reminds us, this is it that can sustain us against all assaults. 
That is when we patiently wait for that day in which Christ will punish all those who now presumptuously condemn us and will show that we and our cause are approved by Him. So both the reformation of the Christians and the response of the world lead us to the reason for preaching judgment. And verse 6, I'll admit, can present us with a lot of difficulty. But we best, understand, we best understand it when we keep in mind the context. Peter writes, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And without diving into all the various ways this has been interpreted in church history, which is a lot, like he often does, I think Matthew Henry explains it best. He wrote this. The gospel had been preached to those Christians who were since dead, who by the proud and carnal judgment of wicked men were condemned as evildoers, some even suffering death. But being quickened to divine life by the Holy Spirit, they lived to God as his devoted servants. Let not believers care, though the world scorns and reproaches them. And so we also can take heart believing with Calvin, even that death does not hinder Christ from being always our defender. It is then a remarkable consolation to the godly that death itself brings no loss to their salvation. Though Christ then may not appear a deliverer in this life, yet his redemption is not void or without effect, for his power extends to the dead. So we can wait in hope for that day, that day of judgment. Because for all who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, there will be then, just like there is now, no condemnation. Only vindication that our hope was not in vain. Those who endure to the end will be saved and will receive the crown of glory. So Peter calls us to live soberly in the world. But he doesn't merely give us negative teaching of things we must avoid. He moves on to positively describe sober living in the church. Edmund Clowney summarizes the next section of 1 Peter in this way. Peter presents the positive side of the contrast in lifestyle. Not drunken debauchery and license, but sober clear-headedness marks the Christian. Love, not lust, fills his heart. The Christian home is open for hospitality, not orgies. Ministry replaces exploitation. And Peter begins first with a premise. He says, the end of all things is at hand. When we hear a statement like this, our first thought shouldn't be the cartoon character on the street corner with the sandwich board hassling passersby. No, Peter here is affirming the truth of New Testament eschatology that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ has brought us into the last days. Redemption has been accomplished. And so we live now in the twofold reality that the kingdom of Christ has been inaugurated while we await its consummation at his physical return. We live, as we so often say, in the already and the not yet. And that should add hope 
and urgency to our life in the church. We don't live anxiously, reading the headlines of the newspaper, trying to figure out what end-time prophecy might be being revealed this week. Instead, we live joyfully, reading our Bibles to know what our Lord wants to find us doing when He returns in glory. So off of that premise, Peter then divides his exhortation into personal actions and then person-to-person actions. First, the personal. He says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. For the second time in this letter, Peter tells us to get our heads on straight. Those who know that the end of all things has come are to be sane and self-controlled. History is, is filled with movements of people who've seen what looks like the end of the world and have responded by losing their minds. Some have abandoned Christian holiness for hedonism in the remaining time they have. Some have abandoned any interaction with the world and given up hope that the preaching of the gospel will actually bring salvation to our neighbors. But Peter says the Christian response is not insanity and flagrant sin. No, we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. We are to understand everything through the teaching of God's holy, inerrant word. We are to believe his promises. We are to obey his commands. And Peter has a specific activity for these sober-minded, self-controlled Christians. In the face of increasing societal pressure, with eternity in view, they are to pray. Because prayer is always timely. It is always appropriate. And it, even when it doesn't feel like it, is always effective. So pray before you act. Pray while you're acting. Pray when you're done. That's what Peter says. We must keep our wits about us because Christian prayer requires a clear-headed view of the world and of our own hearts. Two things that are never dependent on anybody else or any circumstances around us are our mindset and our prayer life. You can control those things anywhere at any time. So Peter calls us Christians to the personal commands of sober-minded self-control and active prayer. And then out of that mindset and out of these prayers, he then calls the church to person-to-person activity. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. For those of you that have been with us for our entire study of 1 Peter, this should probably sound familiar. This is the fourth command related to love in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 23, he said, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In chapter 2, verse 17, he said, Love the brothers. In chapter 3, verse 8, he said, All of you have brotherly love. 
do you think Peter is concerned about Christians loving each other? Yes. And here, he's referring back to that very first command in chapter 1, where he said, have an earnest and fervent love. And the language in, here in chapter 4 almost sounds like he's assuming they've already begun it, even at that point in the letter. And so here he says, take that love and keep going. And he puts love above all else. He says, above all, love one another. Because apart from love, all of our Christian duties are hollow and they will quickly flame out. And then he paraphrases the Proverbs. He says that this type of love will cover over sin. And he's not saying that if we show love, we're going to somehow earn forgiveness in the sight of God. Instead, he's recognizing that the church is filled with sinners who will inevitably do wrong to each other. So Peter says that Christian love will fulfill the ninth commandment, which our larger catechism teaches requires, a, requires sorrowing for and covering our neighbor's infirmities. As Martin Luther put it, as God with his love covers my sins if I believe, so must I also cover the sins of my neighbor. And think of why this is so important for these Christians. Unlike us, when they get their feelings hurt, they didn't have 250 other churches in town to go run and join. They had each other, and that's it. The enemy wants nothing more than to destroy the people of God. And what better way to do it than to sow discord and division among churches suffering persecution? So the antidote to these attacks of the enemy is a love that covers sin. A loving church is a repenting and a forgiving one. So Christ church, love each other in this way. And then Peter gets practical. Christian love will be expressed in hospitality. Remember, there's no church building in each town where these Christians could gather. The very weekly rhythm of worship would require those who had room to open up their homes and to warmly welcome in their brothers and sisters. And as the culture continued to reject and to ostracize these Christians, they would need each other more and more. These Christians, maybe they weren't yet in danger of losing their lives, but they were in danger of losing their friends, their families, even their livelihoods. In these type of circumstances, what does love look like in action? It looks like complaint-free hospitality where those who have been materially blessed meet each other's needs and welcome each other warmly without expecting anything in return. That is the Christian alternative to the raucous, sinful parties that Peter listed in verse 3. And interestingly, Peter does not command them to do hospitality. He actually uses an adjective 
He says, be people who are characterized by hospitality. Karen Job writes again, the church is to be that alternate society where Christians find a place when shunned by unbelievers who live by different values. In a hostile world, the church is to be a place of safety and well-being for its members, a place where common beliefs unite more than differences divide. The Christian community is a colony of the holy nation of God among the nations of the world. So what we may lose as a consequence of not participating in the sinfulness of our culture must be made up for through Christian hospitality. And Christ Church, this already describes you. But especially as the world around us becomes more hostile to God's word, we will only have more and more opportunities to be hospitable without grumbling. So I charge you, excel still more. And then finally, this person-to-person interaction requires sharing spiritual gifts as well as material ones. The gifts of God are not just for the spiritual elite. Each, Peter says, each has something to bring. And God's grace, he says, is varied. Here, Peter does not seem to have in mind only those miraculous gifts of the Spirit that we see in other parts of the New Testament. Instead, he's thinking these broad categories of gifts and graces that God has granted to his people in their strengths, their skills, their personalities, their vocations. See, just like our material goods, all that we have, all that we are is granted to us by the Lord. And so we are merely stewards of everything we have. We're meant to use those things for God's purposes and especially for serving his people. And Peter places these gifts under two broad categories, speaking and serving. And interestingly, these two categories pretty closely align with the two offices he's given the church, don't they? Elders and deacons. But he's writing to everyone in the church. There will be times when all of us need to speak the truth of God's word to one another. And so, elders, set the example. And the rest of you, follow it. When you speak God's truth, speak in line with Scripture and with His purposes and intentions in mind. That's what it means to speak as the oracles of God. But service is no less a ministry than speaking is. And if we try to live up to our calling to serve one another in our own strength, we will burn out and we will fail. That's why Peter says it must be done in the strength that God supplies. So deacons, lead the way. And may the rest of us follow them in placing others' needs above our own and physically serving them in the strength that our God gives us by His Holy Spirit. This is what sober living in the church looks like. And when it is done, 
It brings glory not to ourselves, but to our God through Jesus Christ. As Peter writes at the end of verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It is in his power and for his sake that we do all things. This is the purpose of our sober living, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Jesus is the one worthy of all power and glory, and he rules over all things now and forever. Amen. So brothers and sisters, sober up. I hope you'll ask the Lord to convict, to encourage, to strengthen you as you ponder these things this week. Are you armed with the mindset of Christ or are you controlled by human passions? Are you sober-minded and self-controlled? Is that leading you to prayer, to forgiving and hospitable love and to service to the church? Are you using your gifts for yourself or to serve others? And are you seeking God's glory or your own? May the God of all glory grant each of us his grace to grow more in obedience to him and may his church be blessed as we do so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, please pray with me.